And it is my granddaughter, Ellie, who has taught me most about the basic, a basic instinct of human nature. She reminds me of a person of strong will. Of the three grandchildren, she reminds me most often of a basic fact that we want to control and change our world because Ellie has very strong likes and dislikes. Well, first of all, Ellie, as you can probably see here, does not like shoes. And as fast as you can put on her shoes, she can take them off. Ellie also does not like anything in her hair. Her hair kind of goes, but she abhors anything like barrettes or hair bands, despite the fact that she looks really cute in pigtails. Ellie also has particular tastes about food. She, she does not like too much of anything besides pickles and olives and the occasional Frito. This is breakfast. She really, really likes to tell everyone exactly what to do, and she is most successful telling the dog what to do. Now, Ellie has many, many more opinions that I won't go into here. It is Ellie's mission in life at two years old to bend the world to her will, and she has a number of strategies that she has worked out. So chief among them are maximum public embarrassment. So she is the little girl who has the meltdown at that kind of public moment, like when you're walking through the checkout line and you've just gotten to the checker at the grocery store, that's when she has the meltdown. There is also the nuclear option, which is at home to remove her diaper and threaten to make a real mess. Now, I have to compliment my daughter on how she man... Those pigtails are not going to stay in for any time at all. I have to compliment my daughter, Elizabeth, who does a splendid job of coping with all this, but I think that this is primarily she's good at coping with this because she was the same little girl herself. <laughs> my observation is that from the earliest days, we want to control our world. No one had to teach Ellie any of this. It came naturally. I think it's a basic characteristic of humankind that we want to influence the world around us. And it is to that instinct, our instinct to change the world, that Jesus speaks this morning. So let's read the scripture together. We're going to start off with a couple of verses that Tom Ricks looked at last week, and then we'll go on to three or four new verses. So Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these words from the Sermon on the Mount. There is wisdom here. Lord, we pray that we would appropriate that this morning, that you would be at work in our hearts, in our minds, and in our hands this coming week so that we would be salt and light to the world. And we pray in your name. Amen.
Henry Ford was a man who was used to controlling his world. Within 10 years after Henry Ford introduced the Model T, Ford had 50 factories on six continents. He employed 200,000 people. He sold half of the world's cars. And he was worth $2 billion back when a billion dollars was a lot of money. But in 1927, Ford embarked on the most ambitious and foolhardy venture of his life, a project called Fordlandia. Now, one of the reasons for Ford's success was that he controlled the supply chain for everything that he needed in cars. He owned iron ore and coal mines to make steel. He had forests in northern Michigan, which supplied the wood for his cars. He owned glass factories to make windshields and windows. The only component of automobiles that Ford did not control was the rubber for making tires, and therefore, Fordlandia. Ford's plan was to build a model American community in the jungles of Brazil to produce rubber. The Brazilians were happy for Ford to bring jobs to the Amazon rainforest, and so they sold him a plot of land the size of North Carolina for $125,000. 3,000 workers were hired to carve the town out of the jungle and plant rubber trees. Now, Ford planned to build this American town for mostly indigenous Amazonian workers. So he planned a central square, a business district, a movie theater, a hospital, a ballroom, a golf course, Ford automobiles, of course, and residential neighborhoods that were complete with Cape Cod houses with flower beds, Midwestern flowers, and vegetable gardens. Ford wanted more than a source for rubber. He planned to build a human utopia, and he thought that he could do this with American culture and good wages. So what could go wrong? Well, everything. The managers were alcoholics and incompetents. Disease and parasites were rampant. There was hookworm, malaria, yellow fever. One manager lost four children to illness. Just beyond the town were jungle animals, which attacked the workers. Equipment rusted in the humidity. The rubber trees were devoured by caterpillars. And there was also a great clash of culture between the indigenous people and Ford's utopian ideals. The indigenous people were mystified by American movies and square dancing. Ford had particular ideas about what was a proper diet, and so he gave them canned peaches and oatmeal and whole wheat bread. They weren't buying it. Workers expected to be paid Detroit wages, which were substantially higher than wages in Brazil. And when they found out what they were going to be paid, they rioted. It was disaster after disaster and Ford continued to pour money into the project, but not one drop of latex rubber from Fordlandia ever made it into a Ford automobile. In the end, Ford's utopia failed. Today, the American town in the middle of the Amazon is abandoned. The Cape Cod houses are covered by uh, vines, and there are bats roosting in the rafters. Now, I'd like to ask you this morning, how do you think that change comes to the world?
I suspect that if most of us were pressed, we would think about change in a fairly Henry Ford American kind of way. That is, we pressed again, secretly think that real change in the world comes through big ideas, through big money, through technology, through planning, through American values and hard work. There is nothing wrong with any of those things I just named off. However, our Lord tells us in the passage that we just read that there is quite a different way of change that God has in mind. Jesus tells us that real change comes through humble people who are salt and light to the world. In Matthew 4, Jesus began to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. News about him spread, and there were large crowds that followed him everywhere. Jesus called his disciples out of the crowd. He called them to one side, and he began to teach them. And he started with the Beatitudes. That's how the Sermon on the Mount opens. He says that a person is blessed or happy, who is poor in spirit, who mourns for sin, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who is merciful, who is pure in heart, who is a peacemaker, and who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, we can note several things about this list. First of all, these are rare qualities, qualities that we don't often see in either our neighbors or ourselves. These are also character qualities which are unpopular with lots of people. As Nathan Moser noted a few weeks ago, this is commonly considered to be really bad advice. And the third thing that we can note that is that these are all character qualities, and therefore they are all internal. But we live in a real world. We don't live in isolation from others. We go to schools. We go to offices. We have family and friends. We live in communities. So what happens when a person with these qualities intersects with the non-Christian world? In our passage this morning, Jesus describes the possible results, and he goes from the most negative to the most positive, and he says there are four things that can happen. First of all, we may suffer persecution. Persecution was certainly common, certainly experienced by Jesus and his immediate disciples. Second, we may be salt. Like salt, we can serve as a preservative and as flavor in our culture. Third, and better yet, we can be light. As light, we can illuminate individuals and we can illuminate society. And finally, the good deeds of a disciple may lead people to praise God. So let's talk about each one of these in a little bit more detail. First, we can suffer persecution. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So last week, Tom talked about persecution. He reminded us that to, as you work through the Beatitudes, the first Beatitudes are all in the third person. He says, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, until he comes to this matter of persecution. And then he switches to second person, and he says, blessed are you. So some of his early disciples were being persecuted, and all of us follow Tom reminded us that we don't like it, but that every true disciple will face opposition. But things are likely to go better than this. Jesus tells his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. What are we to make of this? Well, we may think of salt as something that comes out of the salt shaker that sits on every table. But salt was not always so readily available. 
You see a picture here of salt being gathered or harvested as it was in the time of Christ. The Dead Sea, for instance, is a very salty body of water. And so they pushed seawater up into earthen flat pans, and then the water evaporated, and that left the salt which they could harvest. We use salt primarily now as a condiment to enhance the flavor of food. But before refrigeration, people used salt primarily to prevent the decay of meat. Jesus is telling us that one of the works of the Christian is to prevent decay in society. So how is this so? Well, when a morally strong disciple is present, conversation changes. For example, people ref will refrain from telling an off-color joke in the presence of someone they know is a disciple of Christ. A group of students may bully a weaker classmate, but they may not do that if a believer has befriended that classmate. Men may give up plans to skim money from a company if they know that a believer is part of the group and the believer will object. We live in a pragmatic society. Moral standards rise and fall and are subject to improvisation. But a salty disciple doesn't improvise moral standards. Like salt, we are stable and unchanging. Now, the very idea that Christians can influence a society in a healthy way may surprise us. Think, for instance, about who heard the original Sermon on the Mount. This was a group of Galilean peasants. They were simple. They were uneducated. They were crafts workers. They were tradesmen. They were subsistence farmers and fishermen, and there wasn't a bank account among the group. What's more, these people were meek and mournful. They were merciful and peaceful. We ought to be skeptical about whether a group like this, and especially if they're just a tiny minority in society, can they accomplish anything to preserve our society. But Jesus did not share this skepticism. As Jesus speaks to his disciples, he uses the term you, but he uses a form of the second person plural that is emphatic that is direct and effectively means you and you only are salt. Jesus says that the world will undoubtedly persecute the church. Yet it is the task of believers to preserve a world that tends to smell overripe. It's a peculiar teaching that Jesus gives us. The disciples of Christ the people that humanity seeks to destroy, the disciples of Christ are commanded to return good for evil and are therefore the very people that save humanity. It's the paradox of the salt of the earth that the world is saved by those very people that it persecutes. Let me say that again. It is the paradox of salt of the earth that the world is saved by the very people that it persecutes. And Jesus was right, of course. Those Galilean peasants did indeed change the world. They turned the world upside down. But there is a condition to this teaching. Jesus says, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So what is Jesus talking about here? Salt is one of the most stable compounds in nature. 
how can salt lose its saltiness? Well, go back to the way that they gathered salt. They pushed that water up there, and then as the water evaporated, there was not only salt in that water, but there were other minerals too. So as the water evaporated, these other substances were in the salt. Then later on, if the salt were stored, if there were moisture, the salt would be leached out, and that left only these other minerals, which weren't good for preserving anything. And so it was only really fit to be thrown out. Salt girl. You know, you discover things if you go on the internet. And uh, I put in Dead Sea salt, but I came up with Dead Sea mud. So Jesus says that this stuff is only fit to be thrown out, but not now, not us, not today. You see, all that mud is all that other stuff. And so there's a really good business to be had. This is Dead Sea mud, and if you put it on a swimsuit model, you look great. And there are women all over the world who send away for Dead Sea mud, and it makes you beautiful, and it cures anything. If you have eczema, if you have dandruff, if you have arthritis or cellulite, this will take care of it. So perhaps Jesus should have said that the salt that loses its saltiness is only fit to be smeared on desperate housewives. But Jesus' hearers would have understood the message and so should we. There should be something salty. There should be something distinctive about believers. We are always in danger of becoming just like everyone around us and losing our unique place in the world. If the only visible difference between us and our secular neighbors is that we come to church on Sunday while they stay home, why should anyone be interested in us? If we divorce at the same rate as everyone else, if we alienate our children in the very same way as everyone else, if we cut corners on business deals, if we are generally cranky people, why would anyone care about who we are, what we have to say? In what way could we possibly preserve our culture? Christians are called upon to maintain a lifestyle and a character that is radically different from the rest of the world. Then Jesus describes us as light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So here is the kind of a lamp that Jesus had in mind. It's the simplest possible thing. It is a clay pot with common olive oil and a cotton strip for a wick. It's sufficient for the need because Jesus envisions that his followers will live in a one-room house, and this is all they need to provide them with light. In the, way, in the same way, he says, we are to be like this simple light, and he uses the same emphatic and restrictive you so that he is essentially saying to us, you only are the light. And by that, he means that we and we alone expose darkness and the things that are in darkness. We are to show people the way to God. We're to provide inspiration and joy. And again, the Lord warns us not to lose our distinctive qualities. He says that we should not light a lamp and put it under a bowl. It is absurd, he says, that we would conceal our light. When Jesus is talking about salt, he indicates that we are in danger of compromise, of becoming just like everyone around us. And when he talks about light, he tells us in a way that we should not be afraid 
to be distinctive. We should not be afraid to let our light shine. And then finally, Jesus tells us that what we are and what we do may cause others to praise God. He says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Being light and salt, he says, we will naturally perform good deeds and some discerning people may praise God as a result. So what good deeds is our Lord urging? Well, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount describes good deeds. Jesus tells his disciples and us how to speak to others, to forgive others who wrong us, how to use our money, how to avoid judging others, and many other good deeds. But the Sermon on the Mount is not intended to be a complete catalog of all good deeds. Jesus wants us to do everything that we can that is a good deed. So I want to see if we can take away three short lessons from Jesus' teaching to us, and then I want to tell you about a man who I think embodies being salt and light. So the three lessons. First of all, we may think that it is big ideas, big money, and technology that change the world. But Jesus tells us that God changes the world through common disciples. Secondly, he says, there should be a fundamental difference between Christians and the world. We're to be salty. We're to be distinctive. We're to be separate from the rest of society, different in our lifestyle and our values. And third, Christians must accept and live up to the responsibility to preserve and illuminate the world. So finally, I'd like to tell you the story of a man who I think was salt and light, and I owe this story to Scott Holly, who gave me the outlines of the story last fall. The man's name was Henry Gorecki, and he was a man who was a Cardinal baseball fan, always a positive, and he was a chaplain in World War II. Gorecki had a $10 bet on the outcome of the 1946 World Series with a Roman Catholic priest named Sixtus O'Connor. Gorecki was in his 50s when he went to Europe to serve as a chaplain. He had two grown sons in the army. One of them was terribly wounded, and the other one was deeply affected by the Battle of the Bulge. As the war wound down, Gorecki's commanding officer made a surprising request to Gorecki. Would Gorecki be willing to serve as a chaplain to a group of Nazis accused of war crimes? The highest level of Nazis, civilian and military, were going on trial in Nuremberg, Germany, for the atrocities of the Third Reich. And at first, Gorecki vacillated. After all, he wanted to go home. He'd been away from home for several years, and he wanted to see his wife, and he wanted to see his sons. And he also wondered what he had to offer. He wrote later on, how could a humble preacher, a one-time farm boy, make an impression on the disciples of Adolf Hitler? The only advantage that he had was that he spoke German fluently. He prayed and he thought about this for several days before he knew that he was called upon to serve these men. Gorecki served an infamous congregation. From the 21 men on trial, Gorecki served 15 who claimed some relationship to Protestantism. And Father Sixtus O'Connor served six who claimed to be Catholics. When he arrived in Nuremberg, Gorecki went from cell to cell to introduce himself and to invite these men to chapel. Some refused, others wavered, some said they would be there. Of the 15 chairs set up 
for the first chapel service, 13 were filled. And over the next 11 months, scriptures were read, sermons were preached, hymns were sung, prayers were offered, and hearts were changed. Every day, the defendants and their chaplains confronted in the trial the atrocities that they had initiated. And each evening, they would retire to consider matters of life and death, shame and guilt, and the men standing before God. As the trial progressed, so did the 1946 baseball season. The Germans were interested in the chaplain's love of baseball. Gorecki was from Missouri and was a Cardinal fan. O'Connor was from Brooklyn, and he was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And this may sound familiar. There was a playoff between the Dodgers and the Cardinals at the end of 1946, and it was only one game. And the winner was going to go to the World Series and play, of course, the Boston Red Sox. Does that sound familiar to us? The Cardinals eliminated the Brooklyn Dodgers, and so the bet, O'Connor switched his loyalty and was going to root for the Red Sox because the Cardinals had eliminated his Dodgers. By my count, nine of Gorecki's congregation responded to the gospel over the months that followed. Included was the man who was the head of propaganda for Hitler, the Hitler youth leader, the Reich master for armaments and war production, a grand admiral, the president of the German Reichsbank, two foreign ministers, a field marshal. There was a guy named Fritz Sauckel who had mobilized slave labor for Hitler, and he professed faith in Christ. There was Wilhelm Frick, who was the Minister of the Interior, and he was the last to respond to, to Gorecki's presentation of the gospel. He told Gorecki, just before he was taken to execution, that he had become a believer. Eleven of the 21 were executed. Others received prison sentences, and a few were acquitted. When the former Foreign Minister von Ribbentrop was asked on the gallows if he had any last words before he was sung, before he was to be hung, he said, may God have mercy on my soul. And he turned to Gorecki and he said, I will see you again. And he stepped on the platform and he went from this world to the next. While the executions were taking place, the Cardinals and the Red Sox played game seven of the World Series. The Germans executed were gone before they could learn that Gorecki won his bet with O'Connor when Enos Slaughter scored from first on Harry Walker's double, and the Cardinals won the World Series. Gorecki came back after the war, and he was a pastor at a small church in Chester, Illinois. When he died in the early 1960s, his son went through his office and found a file that was crammed full of hate letters. We shouldn't be surprised that Gorecki suffered some level of persecution for what he had done. I don't blame the people who wrote those letters. They, many of them probably had family and friends who died in Nazi Germany. And there, we must say, there is something outrageous about a faith that says that anyone, anyone can be forgiven for what they have done. But that is our faith. Anyone can be forgiven based on the cross of Christ. There is no one here who is beyond forgiveness. It takes someone like Henry Gorecki, who was salt and light to make that known to others. There will be persecution for the disciples of Christ, but true disciples will be salt and will be light so that some may give glory to God.
to our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the table this morning, we are reminded that we are to be salt and light. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us the strength to be salt and light to those around us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We come this morning to the Lord's table. We're reminded again that our sins are forgiven and we are made right with God entirely by the work of Christ on the cross. If you are a believer, if you acknowledge that Christ has paid the price for your sins, you are welcome to come forward this morning. If that is not something that you have settled, we would ask that you stay in your chair until you've settled. The